Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and welcome to episode 163. My guest today is a powerhouse of curating information about today's AI, one that I'm making more and more use of. Alan D. Thompson is a world expert in artificial intelligence, specializing in the augmentation of human intelligence and advancing the evolution of integrated AI. His applied AI research and visualizations are featured across major international media, including citations in the University of Oxford's debate on AI ethics in December 2021. His 2021-2022 experiments with Lita AI and Aurora AI have been viewed over a million times. He is the former chairman for the Gifted Families Committee of Mensa International, the organization for people who test in the top 2% on intelligence tests. Based in Perth, Australia, Alan advises intergovernmental organizations, companies, and international media in the fields of artificial intelligence and human intelligence, consulting to the award-winning series Decoding Genius for GE, Making Child Prodigies for ABC with the Australian Prime Minister, 60 Minutes for Network 10 CBS, and Child Genius for Warner Brothers. He writes The Memo, a monthly newsletter with bleeding-edge AI news that I'm personally finding to be highly useful. Let's get into the interview. Alan D. Thompson, welcome to Artificial Intelligence and You. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. So you're here because some time ago, a colleague of mine was forwarding some amazing documents, visualizations, reports about AI, and I was looking over these of the quality of the graphics and the analyses, and I was asking myself, what consultancy came up with these? Was it Gartner? Was it Accenture? And I looked, and I saw it was one person, and that's you. And the amount of output that you have produced personally on artificial intelligence is unprecedented in my experience. And this is amazing. There's so much of it, in fact, that I struggle to actually describe what it is that you do, because I might leave out something important. So I'd like you to tell us what you see your role as being. (laughs) <laughs> that's, a, that's a very kind intro. I haven't thought about it that way before, but you're right. I've definitely seen some of my viz used in Accenture, NYU at Harvard. I don't know about Gartner, but I know they used it in one of the big papers on how to train a large language model, which is awesome. And that's just one of the things I do. So I talk about this AI consulting, including everything from independent research, which is me sitting down and marking up the GPT-4 paper or the Palm 2 paper, all the way through to producing videos, to keynotes. I'm aiming for 40 keynotes this year. And I just do what comes to me in a moment of inspiration. There's no demand for me to go and sit at my chair for 12 hours a day. But sometimes that does happen. If there's an exciting model release, I just go and jump into it and find out as much as I can about it and make that visible to the other 8 billion of us on Earth that need to be prepared for this integration of AI. 
And thank you for that. And we'll get into what might be behind that, what's driving you. I would first like to visit your personal history in this because I'm always fascinated by the different paths people took to get to whatever it is that they're doing with AI right now. So can you give us some of your background in what brought you to where you are now? Yeah, for sure. It's always fun having these conversations with someone like you, someone as prolific as you, because you'll understand this. And I think all of your listeners will understand this as well, coming from different backgrounds and different contexts. It's not like the early 20th century where we just become doctors or just become lawyers. Mine's been a pretty colourful patchwork of uh, experiences, and I'm really blessed or lucky to have had each of those experiences. I started with computer science I did a degree with both computer science and psychology. I was the only computer scientist or engineer in those psychology units. The rest of them were arts and a lot of them or most of them were girls. But it was a really interesting parallelization to see, a combination to see, because I could already feel that the human element of computers was something that was going to be important right the way through the 21st century. And speaking about doing things in parallel. While I was doing the computer science degree, I was working in professional audio, which was all digital computer-based stuff. I worked for Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. I worked for the Sydney Opera House here in Australia. I worked for Red Bull. And it was about playing around with physics, putting the speakers in the room, putting the microphones in the room, and allowing the creatives to express their voice. Maybe a third parallel in there was a lot of consulting. I was doing strategic or risk consulting for a lot of the biggest companies on the planet. Spent a few years coaching prodigies and high performers, very embedded in the human intelligence space. Again, including consulting to a lot of the big guys, GE, Mensa International, appearing with a lot of the big networks because the focus on peak performance for me was like, we've got this capacity. How are we using it? What do we know about using it? What does it actually look like? And it seems... To me, Peter, that everyone's interested in hearing about a high performer. So I was definitely interested in hearing about, you know, was it genetics? Was it environment all the way through? That stopped in 2020, though, because artificial intelligence, starting with GPT-3, was outperforming all of my Prodigy clients. Better memory, better reasoning, a higher capacity to do things already at that stage. So I shifted completely to working with artificial intelligence from 2020. And here we are three years later, and I'm still doing the same amount of time, but the models have got even better. Thank you. And I should mention, by the way, that you're calling in all the way from Perth, the bottom left corner of Australia, correct? That's the one, yeah. (laughs) When we get visitors here, they normally avoid Perth. You get people on the East Coast, so they can do Melbourne and Sydney and the Gold Coast or Brisbane. We don't get many people over here, but it is the place to be. (laughs) So your history there, the thread that seems to tie these things together is high intelligence. You mentioned Mensa, which is the organization for people who score in the top 2% of a standardized intelligence test. And we had their international supervisory psychologist, Christoph Kovacs, on the show in 2020 now, talking to us about intelligence because of obvious Parallels with artificial intelligence, they both have the word intelligence in the name. That might have been a coincidence or something that could have been avoided because I think it was John McCarthy came up with the term and at times later on may have regretted it. It could have been called something like electronic cognition or other things that were a lot drier that didn't think that AI had something to do with 
what humans think of as being our special, if not only, party trick. <laughs> what, to you, does this convergence of machine and man, you know, I'm doing that just for the M's, but machine and human at the level of mind mean? What does it mean to you? Yeah, I love going all the way back to McCarthy, to Turing, to the guys that set this up. And it was Dr. Alan Turing who called it intelligent machinery. I would love to find a different name for this. Like I've heard augmented intelligence, certainly cognition takes us away from the everyday words like smart and intelligence, but there's something else going on there. The names that we choose for these things are actually really important. You've heard of nominative determinism, where your name determines your roles. You'll find more Denise's becoming dentists. I'm sure you've heard of funny names right. that match their roles. We've got a general manager here in Australia called Dom Bull, and he's, uh, he's a bit headstrong. <laughs> but I think that it was also a deciding factor for the acceptance of terms like gifted or the non-acceptance of terms like gifted. Have these children been given presents and are they abusing that privilege and is this intelligent? Is it artificial? All of those arguments can be made. And I think there's a bit of a disservice here in the name and the acronym that's been chosen, unfortunately. But the way I see it is an amplification and an augmentation of our abilities. And you mentioned Kovacs earlier. I like mapping the other prodigies that are right the way through AI. And there are a lot of them. There's Von Neumann, who was involved, there's Turing, who was involved. A lot of the OpenAI staff have some level of tested giftedness. You've got Demis Asabas at DeepMind in London, who was an identified chess prodigy. And today you've got Terry Tao from Adelaide here in Australia with a tested IQ of between 220 and 230, which seems impossible, but it was ratio IQ rather than score saying that he even uses GPT-4 to help him out with maths, that it can come up with these more creative concepts. This is coming from a guy who attended Flinders University at nine years old and became a professor at UCLA in his very early 20s, won the Fields Medal also in his early 20s, like just the most prolific mathematician in the world saying, AI augments my peak abilities. Look, that's already happening now in 2023. I think this augmentation amplification are going to go much, much further. Anyone who listened to the episodes where I talked with Christoph Kovacs would know that to interpret the IQ number, we would have to know the standard deviation or which scale it was on, whether it was Cattell or Stanford Binet or, or whatever the number was. But we can look that up later. What I want to know is the output that you're producing here, the energy that you've got behind it, there is clearly a lot of drive behind that. There is something pushing you. What is pushing you? I don't know, mate. I uh, listen and I get guided. And if that means waking up at 2am with a paragraph that comes into my head mm. and sitting and writing it out on the laptop, I'll do it. If it means charting the latest X, Y, and Z, I'll do it. This morning it was charting the number of AI papers published per month. And a group at Max Planck had actually documented that up until the end of 2022 or September 2022, showing that there were 4,000 papers per month 
being published in the AI space, which is ludicrous. That's now increased to about 5,000 papers per month. So I was just playing around with those numbers. It's about 160 papers per hour, which is just ridiculous <laughs> and completely impossible for someone to go and read. Sorry, 160 papers per day about seven papers per hour, which is still impossible for someone to sit down and read and understand what's in that paper. Right. But to answer your question, yeah, I listened for Insights and Intuition. I wrote an entire book on intuition, including the fact that 70 plus percent of Nobel laureates credit their discoveries to intuition, to having something divined through them. And I think that is working a lot of the case in what I do. I also have the benefit of not having children at the moment. So I've got a lot more time than mm. people my age. <laughs> and what do you find so exciting about this? Really every aspect of it, Peter. Look, the media focus on all the stuff that's going wrong. It's really unfortunate that they kind of look at the if it bleeds, it leads focus. And they can be excused for that because we were all raised on 1980s Hollywood, right? Terminator and that kind of thing. We've got this almost, well, it is a negativity bias. We want to put our black hat on and go and find out what can go wrong. For me, especially mapping this back to human intelligence and prodigies that are doing exceptional things, I'm saying, well, if we lift everyone up to the level of prodigy, that's got to be exciting. It changes the whole discussion. It even lifts us out of that negativity bias where we can all see the same level it's almost like bringing everyone up to seven foot so they can all go and play basketball. There's an entire, let's call it, year-long discussion about the benefits of artificial intelligence and how it can bring everyone up to a level playing field. Wow. So that's a huge statement about society, humans, transhumanism, even in a way, a vision there. And thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned intuition, in the context of humans, what do you think AI is doing right now that we might label intuition? Oh, that's a really confronting question. When I wrote my book, Connected, it's called Connected Intuition and Resonance in Smart People. I was warned by some of my colleagues on the east coast of Australia that I'd be burnt at the stake for being a witch, <laughs> talking about traumas being inside us. And uh, I published it anyway, and I found a great many academics and colleagues who had gone on record and said, I received this string of numbers in my sleep and called it, and it was the emergency room on the other side of the country, and my son had just been admitted there, or I received this entire paragraph, and I just went and put it into my paper. There were these incredible, incredible stories, and I've just done an interview with Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, who in some ways, founded the popularity of this field. I don't know that computers help out with that, but I know that some people have been using the GPT-3, GPT-4 concept to ask particular questions and to get particular guidance. Now, whether or not it's possible for that to be intuition, I'm not sure, but I know a great number of people have been playing with that. And down to a country level, Turkey even had... GPT-2 generating almost spiritual readings for people a few years ago. So it's a really interesting discussion point. I don't know how far we've come with relying on computers to do it, but I'd encourage people to go and test it out, go and jump onto 
ChatGPT or maybe even better, HeyPi, H-E-Y-P-I.com, which is a free version of Inflection One, and ask it to provide some insights or intuitively guided notes where Terry Tao used it for maths, maybe use it for um, something that's happening in your day. Well, let me tie it to something more prosaic. Intuition could be described as humans coming up with correct answers without being able to explain how they did that. And maybe their subconscious is smarter than their conscious and it just it was background processing, fed the answer through, did not say how it arrived at it. So one example could be uh, facial recognition, because no one can describe how they recognize faces, but we all do it. And so can computers. They just can't explain how they do it either, but we can train them to do that. So that's one sort of very low-level, pragmatic way that computers can produce intuitive results now with AI. Do you see that function along that kind of axis increasing more and more with large language models? Yeah, so in the area of scientific intuition or logic derived without showing working or even making connections that perhaps humans wouldn't make, we're already seeing examples of that. In fact, a lot of AI labs are integrating the concept of step-by-step reasoning so that the model is actually spelling out what it's doing so that the human can either prove it or just (laughs) see the context. That's something that is occurring a lot. I've personally had experiences with GPT-4 making very obtuse connections or connections that I would not have expected between two unrelated concepts that were part of my specialty knowledge, not even worth mentioning here, was music and pop music focused, a very local focus as well. But it had gone and found connections that I didn't know about. So whether or not that's scientific intuition, I'm not sure. You may need to lean on the mathematician's example to find out how he's using it to derive new theorems. But I certainly think it's already a possibility. That's not something we're going to be waiting for. You would be encouraged again to go and play with GPT-4 or one of the other models in your specific area and see what it dishes out. You know, put it to the test. Pretend it's an Einstein squared or pretend it's even a boardroom full of PhDs, each with their own specialty and ask it to make connections between things or to come up with solutions to something. This has been the goal for the GPTs all along. OpenAI have a written objective where they wanted these large language models to help solve global climate issues, to help solve medicine, to help solve education, to help solve economy. And putting humans to work on any of those, what are they called, big awesome problems? Wicked problems, some people call them. Wicked problems, thank you. Putting AI to work on any of those wicked problems or super wicked problems is the best way to do it. Putting humans into that, you've got a committee wasting time, whereas AI is designed for that. It's able to draw from billions or hundreds of billions or trillions of parameters, which are like our synapses or neurons, but it's got no time limit. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have to go to sleep. It doesn't get angry, frustrated, impatient. It just sits there and comes up with the best or most reasonable response. Mm. And saying that it's reasonable response actually defines its working model. And this is where I have perhaps the most inhibition about understanding where the large language models are going, because I know that they're based on a training that essentially says, what's the most likely word to come next? in this based on 
trillion words of input. And yet the result is what we would call reasoning in many cases. And the fact that it isn't reasoning would account for the hallucinations, but that still doesn't explain adequately to me how well it is able to reason correctly in so many others. And there may be some sort of emergent phenomenon here where a kind of reasoning is emerging from this autocomplete on steroids. What do you think about its capability in terms of where we are on a scale of you know, 1 to 10 or whatever of where the large language models could go? Yeah, that's an excellent point you've made there about not actually knowing what these things are doing. And you think that might just be in a layman's discussion or in a very colloquial discussion, but OpenAI wrote that in their paper. In the Instruct GPT paper, they wrote, the GPT model is a black box and we can't infer what's happening behind there, which is really unusual, right? We're trying to backtrack and see what it did in those 10,000 years of training, but it's almost impossible to do so. Perhaps it is impossible to do so. Instead, we're tracking the, I call them achievements unlocked. They're also more formally known as the emergent abilities that come out that are just, I think the right word, Peter, is phenomenal. They are a phenomenon. They were unexpected. You've got not just reasoning, but you've got it able to do things that it really shouldn't have been able to do. And this started with GPT-3, right, back in 2020, which was able to do maths. Now, they went through its training data, and at that stage it was only 300 billion words or 300 billion tokens, and checked to see if 1 plus 1 through to 999 plus 999 was in there, and it wasn't. There was less than 0.1 of those verbatim operations in the training data. And yet GPT-3 had taught itself what a number is, what an operator is, what the equal sign is, and what happens in an equation. And to a certain extent, it was pretty good at, you know, the big four addition, subtraction, multiplication to division for two and three digit numbers. I want to make the point here, though, that it was not told that that was one of its outputs. It certainly was not pre-programmed to do that. It was not looking up a database or accessing a database. In its must have been a thousand years equivalent of training, it had gone found out how to do that. So that's like a really logical example of one of the emergent abilities. And I've got an entire visualization again on the emergent abilities that are coming out that may even include awareness. And OpenAI again have gone on record and said that today's large language models may be slightly conscious. <laughs> now, having consciousness as an emergent ability, to me, is something I don't like talking about. But uh, once again, it's kind of the, at the moment, is the peak of stuff that we're finding right. as an outcome from these models. And I think the quote you're referring to there was Ilya Sutskeva tweeted, today's large language models may be slightly conscious. And then Jan LeCun responded and said, nope, not even for small values of conscious <laughs> and large values of larger language models. So it's, it's still not a settled question, mostly because we have no idea what consciousness or awareness is, at least not in any way that's useful for measuring whether an AI has it. And that is one of the interesting things. You've talked about your role in measuring and reporting on today's large language models and the state of AIs so that people have a useful understanding of what's 
currently available. What sort of predictive functions do you perform? Do you get into where you think things are going to be six months from now, which is the distant future as far as AI is concerned at the moment? Yeah, it's such a hard one, isn't it? I watched the interview between Emad from Stability AI and I don't know actually know who the interviewer was, yesterday where he said it's impossible to look out more than five years. I avoid prediction in general because if you get it right, great. If you get it wrong, <laughs> you lose a certain amount of credibility. I do look six months out. I think that's easy enough to do, particularly with these labs being pretty vocal about what they're playing with. So we know that Google DeepMind will have Gemini-trained ready for release by the end of this year. We know that OpenAI will have GPT-5 starting training in December of this year. And we know that we've got uh, embodied AI through robotics like One X's Neo robot, which is a beautiful clothed humanoid robot that stands at about our height, 1.6 metres, 5 foot 7-ish. And that's also ready for release at the end of this year. It's already in testing. So looking at the stuff that I might consider short terms within the next six months is easy enough to do, but I know I could not tell you a year or two in the future. Even from a technical perspective, but from a political perspective, it becomes a lot harder. Are they going to lock that tech away? Are they going to wrap it up in regulation for years? We'll see what happens. Well, the last six months has been such an explosion that if it keeps going at the same rate, the next six months are going to be bordering on unimaginable. And so it's exciting and your excitement is palpable and it's definitely resonating with mine. And one of the things that's fascinating to me, and especially as a parent, is that as much as this technology has positive potential, there are scenarios for negative potential that pretty much parallel the positive one as far as you go out. And for a long time, the media narrative on that was driven, as you said, by like Terminator. Anytime someone like Stuart Russell would go on the media, they would run a picture of the Terminator next to what he was saying, which had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Where do you sit on the question of the need for safety? The people who actually built chat GPT were at the top of the list of people saying that signing a letter, a statement saying that AI poses an existential threat. Yeah, another huge question, Peter. I'm not sure I have fully formed my opinion on that, but I will try and articulate it. We mentioned at the beginning of this that artificial and intelligence may not be the best terms. Even superintelligence as a one-word descriptor might not get us there. I don't know what the best description is. Let's keep superintelligence for a moment. Considering that humanity does have bad faith actors, whether they're working for a state or they've got some sort of mental illness or they're just dissatisfied with life, <laughs> a superintelligence makes bad people doing bad things a lot easier for them to achieve those bad things. For instance, you could send a million tailored, customized spam emails instantly and you could keep that going. You could keep that conversation going without being there as a human. So it's not taking up any of your time. That's one of perhaps a few trillion examples of stuff that bad faith actors could get up to. 
And OpenAI and many of the other labs have been pretty good at researching that. They've got entire alignment centers that play around with this stuff, that red team this stuff. Google brought on 200 ethicists. There is a decent amount of work being done to protect what is essentially the human, <laughs> not the tool. Now, the concerns for the tool, I'm not sure how informed they are. Humans have a background of tribal competition, hurt others, certainly has been happening for centuries. AI doesn't necessarily have that. A superintelligence doesn't have a drive to compete or to remove others or even to exist. There's minimal research on it wanting to keep itself alive. But if we think of superintelligence as a static black box, mm -hmm. it's essentially a clinical sterile brain that is operating at thousands of times higher performance than a human. The concern for me is not that black box. The concern for me, and hopefully for regulators, is the use of that and should not even be the training of that or limitations, regulation on how and when and where we train that. It should be on who uses that and mm. how they use that. So it's a really hairy question, really thorny question, and it takes entire fields to be playing with this. It's not a computer science problem. It's not really a psychology problem, um, but it will bring in some of those facets plus a lot more. And it is, to me, also amazing that we can be discussing something in terms of its potential to create impacts on the level of nuclear war. I'm not saying, again, let me be clear, I'm not saying causing nuclear war. I'm saying impact on the level of that kind of impact on society about a technology that would equally be capable of curing cancer, all of them. Mm -hmm. And whereas nuclear weapons do not have a generally positive application to balance out the negative ones. That's the end of the first half of the interview. The second part will be next week. Terry Tao's estimated IQ of 230, by the way, is on the common Stanford Binet scale, which has a standard deviation of 16, which puts Tao at eight standard deviations from the mean, which, considering that six standard deviations is a percentile of two in a billion people, is going to be so small that statistically, it means he is the smartest person in the world, if you can draw any conclusions from numbers that far out on the curve. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, and boy are there a lot of headlines to choose from, AI is detecting guns on the Philadelphia subway system, not by the sound of them being fired, that technology has been out for a while, but by seeing them on surveillance video. The technology is called Zero Eyes, and it is being used on SEPTA, the subway system, in 300 of the 30,000 cameras in the system. Co-founder Sam Alimo said that Zero Eyes is only looking for objects, not at people, and therefore is free of racial and gender biases. He said, quote, we are strictly object detection, and the only object we can detect is a gun, end quote. The technology is in use at schools, companies, and the U.S. Department of Defense. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Alan D. Thompson when we'll talk about trends towards artificial general intelligence, where we might be on that path, and what we might expect as we get closer. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, 
No matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.